Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. No one wants to end up in a nursing home, but more than half of Americans will need long-term care as they age, according to a federal study. Coming up, we'll hear from a national advocacy group with suggestions for families who are looking for care for their elderly loved one. We'll also hear from the State Department of Public Health, which regulates nursing homes in Connecticut, and we'll talk with an association representing nonprofit facilities for the elderly about the realities and challenges they see in delivering care. Do you have a loved one in a nursing home? How did you choose a facility that would care for him or her? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. First, there have been some recent stories about lapses in care at some Connecticut nursing homes. I want to welcome to the show Kara Rosner, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. She's reported extensively on nursing home citations in the state. Kara, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I mentioned that you've been uh, looking at citations in the state of Connecticut. This is happening over the last four years. What can you tell us about the the number of incidents and some of the reasons why uh, these nursing homes uh, were cited? Yeah, so we looked back at CHIT, combed through some data going back from 2015 to 2018 and found that the, there are 224 nursing home facilities in Connecticut um, that DPH inspects and regulates, and we found that over that span of a few years, there were 247 incidents involving lapses in care. Um, and of those 247, 25 of the cases were incidents in which the citations noted that staffing may potentially play a role in it, cases where, for instance, a resident's care plan dictated that a resident should have the assistance of two staff members for transfers and things like that, but only one staff member was there. We're going to be talking about uh, staffing ratios at nursing homes, uh, not only in Connecticut, but nationwide in just a couple of minutes. But when we, when we say lapses uh, in care, can you walk us through some of the incidents and what happened? Sure. So the largest share of incidents during that 2015 to 2018 span Um, 65 of those incidents involved falls, which resulted in severe bruising, broken bones, and other injuries. Um, Another 37 incidents referred to residents suffering pressure ulcers that were caused by staff um, either not following doctor's care orders or by neglect. 31 incidents were um, cited for causing general harm to patients, and 29 of the citations referred to medication errors that were in some cases life-threatening to residents. Now, in these uh, instance, in these incidents over the last four or more than four years, have some of these nursing homes received multiple citations? Yes, definitely. And actually, within the past few years, I'm not exactly sure when, um, but at some point, the Department of Public Health raised the maximum fine that nursing homes can receive. So some have received increasing fines, some have received um, multiple fines and citations also. Uh, when a facility is cited or fined by the Department of Public Health, uh, they um, have to pay a fine. But in terms of uh, improving uh, the lapse that happened or to making sure that it doesn't happen again, I mean, what kind of follow-up is there? In most cases, the facility is required to, as part of the agreement with DPH, submit a um, correction, corrective action plan where they lay out to state public health officials their plans for 
um, remedying the situation so that it's not going to happen again. So in some citations I've seen, a lot of, often it will involve staff retraining or new education for the staff. In some cases, depending on the severity of the incident, staff is terminated and let go, um, and other changes like that are made. On the phone with me, Kara Rosner, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, CHIT. Uh, she's reported extensively on nursing home uh, citations in the state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Kara, let's talk more about uh, when there were lapses in care, how they were related to staffing shortages. Uh, what's the issue there? Sure. So when, in the past few years going through these nursing home citations, my editor and I noticed what seemed to be an increase in incidents where staffing likely could have played a role in it. We saw um, incidents where not enough staff was on hand and either staff would tell investigators after the fact blatantly that staff wasn't there or it just seemed implied in the type of violation that there weren't enough hands there to help residents when they needed them. And were there also issues in the amount of training uh, staff received? There not nothing that was explicitly said in the citations, although, as I said, a lot of times in their corrective action plans, staff will be retrained to try to prevent future things from happening. Uh, when we think about, uh, you know, the staffing ratios, and this is a very hard job, mm-hmm. um, later on we're going to be talking about the fact that um, oftentimes it can be hard to find uh, enough staff for this type of work. But what about the culture within particular nursing homes? How does that play a part in uh, whether a staff member um, is c- comfortable and asking for help when they need it? Exactly. That was an important point that was brought up to me and some people I talked to in my reporting, because as I said, in some cases, it seems like staffing may have been an issue, but it's hard to attribute a violation solely to staffing. For instance, in that case where two people should have been helping a resident and only one did, it could have been because there wasn't another person there to help, or it could be that the culture in that facility doesn't encourage staff members to ask for help or speak up when they're not quite sure what they need to be doing or if they can't meet all their job demands. We wanted to hear more perspective on nursing homes nationwide. So joining our conversation now on where we live is Jordan Rao. He's senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's hear a little bit about uh, staffing ratios. Uh, This was an issue brought up in some nursing homes in Connecticut. I'm curious how Connecticut ranks versus other states in the type of staffing that's available at these nursing home facilities. Right. So um, according to the latest uh, national data, uh, Connecticut does better than most staffs, uh, most nursing homes in most states, um, particularly in the number of registered nurses. So those are the sort of the top of the food chain in the uh, nursing home. They're the most experienced, knowledgeable, and they direct all the care. So, um, and you see in the quality measures, um, Connecticut is a little bit better too. Um, long-stay residents are a little bit less likely to end up back in the hospital. Um, and um, while there are more fines, which can either indicate a more aggressive uh, uh, regulators, health inspectors, or more problems or more fines. The fines tend to be a little bit lower than national. Um, and that's not, you know, particularly surprising uh, given um, the fact that, uh, you know, Connecticut is uh, the patients in nursing homes tend to be a little bit uh, less frail than nationally. Uh, but again, um, you know, there's limits to comparisons because, you um, you know, just whatever is the the national average doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's good or ideal. Um, now, uh, Kara, you're also uh, with us uh, on the phone, and I'm curious. Uh, we're hearing from Jordan uh, talking about how, compared to other states, Connecticut's ranking pretty well. Uh, but what do advocates say when uh, these issues do uh, arise in the state in terms of where improvement needs to happen? 
They definitely say, echoing Jordan's statements, that just because Connecticut is doing better than the national average doesn't mean that it's doing well enough. And actually, one point that people I talked to were quick to point out is that there really are very few federal requirements for nursing home staffing. The, the nursing home reform law of 1987, which hasn't been updated since 1987, doesn't really spell out staffing ratios. It says there needs to be a registered nurse on staff for eight consecutive hours every day, there need to be um, licensed nurses on staff 24 hours a day and what they call sufficient staff to meet residents' needs. But it doesn't spell out what sufficient means and doesn't say anything about staffing ratios. Um, now, Connecticut law goes a little bit further than that. The state's public health code um, requires a certain level of licensed personnel and aides depending on a nursing home's number of residents. So, for instance, if a facility has 100 residents, State law requires at least 140 hours of licensed care and aids during the daytime shift, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and at least 50 hours of licensed care and aids on the overnight shift, 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, but people I spoke to also pointed out that while it's great that Connecticut has stricter standards, there's really no definitive way to gauge the number of staff members that correspond with those hourly requirements because every facility is different. Caregivers could work different hours and different shifts depending on schedules. So it's really hard to get a handle on exact staffing ratios. Jordan, can you add to that in terms of what the federal government requires in terms of the, the data on uh, staffing and when we think about uh, staffing on weekdays versus weekends, um, I mean, how do facilities handle that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Kara hit the, exactly what the, what the federal regulations are. They're very, very uh, de minimis. Um, there are efforts to, to set specific staffing ratios federally, but that's never happened. So traditionally, the way that it's worked is that nursing homes, when an inspector would come in, uh, they would look over the last two weeks of, of employment records, and that's how they would determine the, um, uh, the staffing levels. And that was uh, really uh, not that reliable, and that some of the less uh, uh, honorable nursing homes would uh, staff up they had a general idea when their inspection was going to be, so they would increase staffing right about that. So as part of the Affordable Care Act, um, the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, which oversees all this nationally, um, required put into place a, a uh, arrangement where uh, nursing homes had to submit their actual payroll records. And so that um, started being reported last year. And when we looked at those records, we saw um, a couple of things. First of all, um, nationally staffing was lower than it had been self-reported. Uh, it's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison, but um, that was there. And then uh, the other thing that we saw, which was um, there's a great variation among nursing homes, which which we knew, but that there are some in every single state that are very well-staffed and some that are poorly staffed. Um, and then the most striking thing, which confirms what just about most people who uh, have relatives in a nursing home or in a nursing home will say, is, is that the staffing is significantly lower on weekends. Um, and that's when you have a lot of your problems, weekends and holidays. Um, and, um, and so anyway, so the data showed that. And uh, the federal government um, has been very concerned about that. And they've started starting this month or around now. They're, they're not saying exactly when. They've been notifying states, which nursing homes seem to have uh, suspiciously low staffing on weekends. And when uh, inspections occur, the inspectors are supposed to take a special look at those homes and those staffing levels. Hmm. So there's uh, access to better data, but Medicare is also using a rating system. Um, is that helping uh, glean which ones are, are better facilities, or are there still issues there? Um, I think it's more accurate now. So if you go to Nursing Home Compare, which is uh, the federal uh, system, um, it's 
got an enormous amount of information and uh, they boil it down, you know, to in this five-star system. Um, and it is useful. It's it's um, the staffing stuff is more accurate, but um, you know, it's not perfect. It doesn't capture a lot of the things. One of the things that it doesn't capture is overnight staffing, and that's sort of the big. Uh, one of the hardest areas that isn't being measured right now because uh, a lot of problems will happen overnight. The 11 to 7 shift, the third shift, um, are often really minimally staffed. And you can understand the reason for that. Both, you know, it's hard to find people that will work those hours. And then also, you know, most residents are asleep. But nonetheless, there are many, many nursing homes around the country where there's just, you know, one aid for a 40 person hall. And that's becomes deeply problematic whenever there's a problem. So we're hearing about uh, the need for uh, better data that's coming now with uh, Medicare uh, having a rating system uh, based on the Affordable Care Act requirements. Uh, so there's government oversight. But in terms of families, uh, you know, in local uh, towns and communities, are there uh, ways that they can, uh, you know, push for better care at a particular facility? I understand that some places have family councils, Jordan? Yeah, that's right. There's uh, family and resident councils or something that can be set up at any nursing homes, and uh, Medicare gives them particular rights. They can have meetings in the nursing home, uh, regular meetings. They can invite whoever they want into their meetings. Uh, the nursing home has to appoint a liaison to them. And, um, and these groups are really, really impressive, the ones that I've seen. Um, they tend to be you know, a mix of um, some of the residents that are, you know, able to participate. Obviously, a lot of people in nursing homes really aren't in a position to, you know, slog through a long meeting. Um, and then family members, and they, you know, it's sort of like a union. They do a better job of, um, of sort of assessing what the systemic issues that the residents have and the families have and advocating for improvements in the um, with the administration and holding them accountable. Some of them are very, very knowledgeable. Um, people, you know, have self-educated themselves. You know, there was one in New York State where uh, the president of the family council was really concerned about staffing, and he literally would walk hall to hall and talk to everyone and, and make his own notes of what the staffing levels were and then present it to the family council and present it to the, um, uh, you know, to the administration. And then if there are problems, also these people tend to be more knowledgeable what the uh, regulatory structure and the oversight is. So you've got long-term care ombudsmen in every state who can come in and um, advocate for residents. And then obviously uh, you can file complaints if you think that there's a violation of other state or federal uh, rules with, um, with the authorities. And these groups tend to be pretty knowledgeable about that as well. Jordan Rao, again, is senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. We'll tweet out a link to your stories at Where We Live. Jordan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also, Kara Rosner is with us, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. Kara, thank you. Thank you. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there are multiple nursing homes that operate in our state. How do you find one that you will trust will give your loved one the best care he or she needs? We're going to talk more about that after the break, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio.
I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about nursing homes today, given the fact millions of Americans will need long-term care once they reach retirement age. But the cost of care is expensive, and it challenges families and governments with how to pay for it. More on that coming up. Now, how does the state of Connecticut ensure the nursing homes that operate in the state are giving the best care to the residents? In studio with me now is Barbara Cass, registered nurse and branch chief of the Healthcare Quality and Safety Branch at the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Barbara, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. I want to let our listeners know, um, again, if you've been trying to navigate through uh, the system of trying to find care for your elderly relative, we want to hear from you. Also, if you work in a nursing home, what are the challenges to the job that impact how residents are cared for? Uh, We also want to hear your perspective. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So, Barbara, we heard earlier it's the Department of Public Health um, that will... uh, put out citations and fine particular nursing homes that have lapses in care. So you're uh, really responsible, you're the agency in licensing and regulating. So tell us about the inspection process. How often does it happen? So thank you, Lucy. Inspections in nursing homes occur annually, at least annually. Connecticut Public Health Code, which the Department of Health has authority over monitoring, issues a license and nursing homes are licensed every two years. In order to receive Medicare and Medicaid payment, nursing homes also need to be certified through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. And those certification surveys are done annually. So when we go in and we conduct our inspections, which are usually a team of four to five people, and it could last four to five days, we are looking for compliance with public health code and the Code of Federal Regulations. So we're really wearing two hats when we conduct those inspections. We also do complaint investigations. So while we are usually typically in a nursing home every year at least, we can in some cases be in a nursing home four or five times a year based on the volume of complaints we receive. Now, uh, when this happens, do nursing homes know when the state inspectors are coming? Can they prepare, so to speak? They have a vague sense of the window. So the window is 9 to 15 months since their last certification inspection. But by federal law and state law, all of our visits are unannounced. And there are implications to anyone, criminal implications to anyone who would announce the survey inspection. And can you give us an idea of percentages when you um, uh, cite uh, nursing homes? Are they coming from uh, mostly when the state is inspecting or are you following up from maybe complaints from a loved one and then you understand that there's a a problem? I think it's both. Um, During the course of our inspection activities that we conduct annually, depending on the nursing home and situations that we may be observing or may be hearing from residents or families, we will follow up and look for compliance there. But also, we do identify issues when we do complaint investigations. Uh, I was curious, Barbara, if you could talk also about uh, earlier we heard that oftentimes it's staffing uh, shortages and staffing ratios uh, uh, that can uh, be part of the issue when a lapse of care happens. Um, We heard from the national reporter that uh, these incidents can happen on the weekends when uh, staffing can be lower. So I'm just curious about in terms of the staffing requirements in Connecticut and what you're seeing uh, when uh, your uh, department, your inspectors are going in. Okay, thank you. When we go in to do our inspections, whether it's a complaint inspection or certification or licensure inspection, we always look at staffing. As Jordan had indicated, we do look at two to three weeks of the scheduled staffing. 
And as has been mentioned, Public Health Code does prescribe the ratios for licensed staff and direct caregivers. CMS, the, the federal regulations are much broader, where they speak to adequate staffing. And from a regulatory point of view, we appreciate that even more, because when the expectation is adequate staffing, it means they have to meet the com complex needs and acuity needs of the people that they're serving. So should we identify during our activities that that's not being met, then we have that broad latitude to identify adequate staffing. Certainly, we achieve that goal by talking with residents, talking with family members, and the observations that we make. And in November of this year, in 2019, phase three of the mega rule is being released, or the third phase of the mega rule is going to be implemented. And it speaks in the federal regulations much more broadly about staffing, qualifications of staff, training of staff, and testing competencies of staff. So we have greater enforcement ability that's coming this year. This is where we live. In studio with me, Barbara Cass, registered nurse and branch chief of the Healthcare Quality and Safety Branch at the Connecticut Department of Public Health. As we talk about nursing homes uh, in our state today, I wanted to bring into the conversation Mag Morelli, who's president of Leading Age Connecticut. Um, we wanted to hear more about uh, the types of staff uh, at particular nursing homes in the state. So, Mag, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, the, your association, who do you represent? Leading Age Connecticut represents the not-for-profit providers of aging services in the state. Um, we represent providers who provide uh, nursing home care as well as home health care, uh, adult day care, hospice care, throughout the full continuum of aging services. Uh, Kara Rosner from CHIT mentioned there are 224 nursing home facilities in the state. So how many are actually uh, non-profit who are part of your association? Um, and there are 40 not-for-profit okay. um, nursing homes in the state. Mm -hmm. So when we're, when we're thinking about uh, staffing uh, shortages uh, and ratios, um, what are you hearing from your, um, on your members of, of how they address when there are concerns about uh, care, but also how do you staff up so that there's enough uh, uh, support there uh, to take care of um, the residents? Well, in the nursing home field, people always look at the type of resident that they're caring for, who is living in their community, uh, what type of care is needed to be provided as they adjust their staffing levels and provide the training for their staff. I think that was touched on earlier, the training for staff. It's so important for staff to be trained throughout the year on the, the, the needs of the, the residents that are living with them um, and uh, the competencies that are needed to provide that appropriate care. So I think training is, is extremely important uh, throughout the nursing home field. Uh, for our listeners who are thinking about trying to find a facility for a relative, uh, is it uh, common that uh, nonprofit uh, nursing homes, are their staffing ratios different than what they'd find at for-profit? I think that the nursing homes are very transparent. So as we talked about in the earlier segment, you can go on Nursing Home Compare and you can see what the staffing levels are. Uh, nonprofits um, have historically had a little bit of higher staffing ratios than um, other nursing homes. That's sort of in their culture. But I think that there are, but you can find how all nursing homes are staffed on Nursing Home Compare. And I think that there's nothing that beats a visit to a nursing home to, if you're th considering a placement in a nursing home, to visit a nursing home, to talk to the staff, to see how the staff is interacting with the residents, um, and to, to see the culture of the, the nursing home to really get a feel for uh, where you're going to consider 
um, admitting a, a family member. Uh, we keep talking about staff uh, generally, but I'm curious if you could break down for us uh, the type of staffing uh, that's found at a particular uh, uh, nonprofit that's part of your association. So we heard earlier that um, there needs to be one RN for a particular num- registered nurse for a particular number of residents. But when we're thinking about the day-to-day care, um, how, who are the people doing the work? What are their positions exactly? Well, I think the, the probably the, the person that is, interacts most with the resident would be the certified nursing assistant. And um, the CNA can uh, the CNA really, really makes the day for the resident. And we found in the past decade or so, the nursing home field has adopted what we're calling culture change. And part of that culture change is really realizing how the staff interacts with the resident and how the resident's day is planned is very different than what we think of in the old traditional nursing home. And so we've looked towards consistent assignment, where a nursing assistant takes care of the same residents every day, gets to know their resident, is empowered to understand what the resident's needs are, and to really interact with both the resident and with their staff team to meet those needs. And that has made a real, really big difference in a lot in many nursing homes. And that's something that uh, the consumer should know about and ask about consistent assignment. I think also that um, the nursing assistants work very, cl- when they work very closely with their team and with their supervising nurses and with the geriatrician or the physicians that are on staff and the administration, that team approach makes a huge difference in the culture of the nursing home. Uh, when we think about uh, these CNAs, uh, what is their background? Is it hard to find qualified people to do this work? It's becoming harder to, to recruit people into the field, and I think we're very concerned about the next few years. Um, not only in nursing homes, but throughout the aging services field, people can take advantage of of um, many different opportunities to receive long-term care, both in their home as well as in nursing homes. And But all of this care is very labor-intensive, and it relies on a large pool of gifted care ca- caregivers. So we're very concerned about, um, as we enter in the next few years where unemployment is low, is really recruiting people into this field. We really need to reach out to the younger labor pool, get people to understand that there are really rewarding careers in aging services, uh, recruit them, retain them, train them so that they're able to really embrace this work. And you'll see that uh, our nursing homes are filled with many, 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 many really gifted caregivers who make the world a difference to the residents and their Mm -hmm. families. Is one of the barriers uh, to finding qualified people the fact that they're not paid uh, very well? And is that a challenge? It is a challenge. And I mean, uh, we work every day to try to uh, provide the resources to our workforce. Uh, the legislature has tried. You know, these are difficult times in the state, but they've really tried to provide some type of um, increase in the last several years, not only to the nursing homes, but to the home care providers, um, really tr- so that we can recruit and retain. Um, and retaining is a really important thing, the care um, the, the labor force, and provide them with a, a wage that makes this job not only personally rewarding, but financially rewarding to them. So that is, a, that is a, uh, a large challenge. And in the nursing homes, 70% of the nursing home residents' care is being paid for through the Medicaid program. And Medicaid reimbursement is not, um, does not meet the cost of care. And so there is a challenge, a constant daily challenge to meet that cost. 
This is where we live. In studio with me, Mag Morelli, president of Leading Age Connecticut, also Barbara Cass, who's a registered nurse, and she's also with the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Uh, this state agency regulates and licenses uh, nursing homes. We're going to take uh, some listener calls in just a couple of minutes, but Barbara, I did want to ask you, uh, we touched on um, uh, culture within nursing homes, and uh, we'd heard about that being uh, an issue in terms of the nursing homes that have been cited uh, by the state uh, with lapses of care. I'm curious if you could build on that a little bit and how um, there have been concerns in some facilities about nursing home culture and what are ways to improve that? Well, being a regulator, I certainly believe that the work we're doing at the department is part of the quality assurance aspect of health care. So subsequent to a nursing home visit or an inspection survey, if we identify noncompliance, we issue a violation letter and a deficiency statement. So once the facility receives that, as Kara had mentioned earlier, they are required to complete a plan of correction. And the plan of correction is very, very important to us. It's approved by the supervisor of record of that particular survey, and it must cover certain elements that gives the department reasonable assurances that there'll be measures in place to really mitigate the risk of recurrence of that specific issue. However, there are some situations that rise to the level of it could be an immediate danger to public health or safety for that particular nursing home resident, and we may be issuing a citation. And citations have two classifications, Class A and Class B, Class A being if there's an immediate danger to the health and safety of that resident, and Class B is if there's a potential for danger or health safety to that particular individual in the foreseeable future. And associated with a citation is a civil money penalty. And it could range up to $20,000. So we do believe that our citation program and our plan of correction program is working towards mitigating risk of occurrence. And there also are situations where we could be issuing a consent order with a facility. If there should be significant issues that we believe at the department um, would be very difficult for the facility to correct. We find our consent order is a very valuable tool. It's a agreement between the facility and the department, and it directs certain measures that we believe will help correct the situation. Uh, you mentioned uh, some situations rise to uh, a level where you, uh, the state needs to immediately come in and there are uh, different uh, classes of citations uh, um, plus corrective plans that need to come in play. I know uh, some of our listeners saw that very troubling story in the Hartford Current about a recent sexual assault incident in Fairfield. So when something like that happens, uh, how does the state step in? So That was between two residents. Um, and... It, it, Speaking broadly about that type of a situation, when we receive or it comes to our attention and a variety of sources are used when we initiate a complaint investigation, it could be something we've read in the media, it could be a patient complaint, but also facilities are required to report certain incidents or an unusual occurrence in the facility. So we have class A, class B, class C, and class D. A class B is when there's an allegation or a concern where there may have been abuse or neglect. And abuse can be broadly defined. So in a case like that, if we get an, an anonymous complaint that there's been an allegation of abuse, 
we would look at the allegation and we would do an on-site inspection of the facility. First and foremost, ensuring that there are measures in place to protect the resident who may have been involved, but also broadly speaking, are there measures in place to protect the other residents? Rachel's calling from Killingworth. Rachel, go ahead. Yeah, this is um, probably more of a testimonial to to everything that you guys have been talking about um, recently. My mother, who had gone in for a, a pituitary um, surgery, which went completely wrong, she was put, we didn't get to choose which um, facility that she had gone to, but she went for a rehab, which did not take, and moved into long-term care. Um, and I have I have witnessed a lot of the, I suppose, lack of motivation by staff and um you know, there's some kind of cleanliness issues where they don't really understand even what her condition is. They'll, she's on a feeding tube. They'll come in and ask for her dinner order. Um, you know, she has vision issues. They ask what she wants to watch on TV. Um, she's fallen out of bed. So, you know, I live in Killingworth. She's up in Litchfield County. And, and so I'm constantly there trying to monitor her care. Um, so regardless if we're on private pay, which is extremely expensive, for that kind of care or Medicare. I, I just wonder if there's any kind of, um, I don't know if there is, but some kind of incentive program for staff members to be more passionate about the care that they're giving. Well, Rachel, thank you uh, for uh, calling in. And um, we're sorry to hear uh, that your uh, mother's recovery ha- did not go as expected. I wanted to ask uh, Mag Morelli uh, to respond when families um, have concerned about the quality of care that their um, their loved one is receiving. Uh, what can they what can they do? I think the first thing they need to do is approach the leadership of the nursing home. So that would be the director of nursing, the administrator of the nursing home, discuss their concerns, go right to the top. Um, and and speak directly to the issues that you're concerned with. I also, you know, if there is something where they feel that there is a true danger, I mean, as Barbara said, they can report that as in a complaint to the Department of Public Health. But I believe that, you know, if the first thing, the first avenue would be to approach the administrator and just, just discuss their concerns. Uh, Barbara, did you want to add to, to Rachel's uh, uh, idea about incentivizing a uh, uh, staff to be show more compassion. I mean, this sounds like something about uh, better training uh, and and finding qualified people to take care of of residents like Rachel's mom. Well, we're looking at how staff engage with residents. That's certainly part of our inspection process. But even speaking more broadly, we've had brief discussions about culture change and culture change in nursing homes. Connecticut does have a culture change coalition, and it's addressing those issues as Mag had had spoke about staff retention. That's one of the elements of culture change. Uh, Connecticut is, we're we're not too far ahead of the pack, but we are moving in a very positive direction in terms of culture change. Um, As I mentioned, an element of culture change is staff retention and job satisfaction related to the work that they're doing. As Mag had mentioned, it's important work, very valuable work, and very rewarding work. Um, During, as I mentioned, during the inspection activities, we do look at interactions between staff. It's important for us to see that staff are speaking to the person and speaking relative to the person and their cultural needs. so it's an ongoing work. Uh, Meg, I, before we go, I, I did want to ask you um, about steps from the perspective of your association, Leading Age Connecticut, on ways the state or the federal government um, can work to improve nursing home care. 
Well, the federal government has just recently revamped all of the nursing home regulations, and that's been phasing in and in three phases over the last four years. And they've embraced uh, this culture change philosophy. They've really embraced the concept of continuous quality improvement throughout the nursing home, from leadership um, to resident care throughout the throughout the nursing home. And they've really recognized the need to enhance the training and make it very specific to the residents that are in the nursing home. So this move on the, uh, fe- by the federal government to really update their regulations has been embraced by the nursing home field, and uh, we're really hopeful that uh, it will have a f- large impact throughout the field. One thing I just wanted to mention, the previous call had mentioned that they had no choice um, as to where her mother was going to um, rehab. And I just want to encourage people, if they know they're going in for surgery, to look ahead of time at where they may want to ha- receive their rehabil- rehab services. If they're looking for a placement or they're being discharged from the hospital, to take some time, to, to take time to take a look at where they would like to be placed or where they would like to be admitted for their care. Um, you do have time, even though sometimes you feel rushed, and I would just encourage people to use the tools that are going to be, I think, talked about in the next segment. I want to thank Mag Morelli again, president of Leading Age Connecticut, for coming in today. Thank you. Also, Barbara Cass, registered nurse and branch chief of the Healthcare Quality and Safety Branch at the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Barbara, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the resources families can use when looking for long-term care for their relative. Now, are you in the process of looking at nursing homes or assisted living facilities? What questions or concerns have come up? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's not something anyone looks forward to, the idea that as you age, you may need help taking care of yourself. But Americans are living longer, and more than half who reach retirement age or older will need long-term care. That's according to a study by the RAND Corporation. Now, are you trying to find care for your elderly parents or ailing spouse? Do you have a question about how to make the right decision? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome uh, with us on the phone Lori Smatenka, Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Lori, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, So it sounds like you are an advocacy group for families to make the right decision. How long have you been around? Our organization has been in existence for more than 40 years, and we are advocates for residents and individuals receiving long-term care and services and the families and friends that are supporting them. I mentioned that uh, we all know uh, we're living longer. Uh, That's a good thing, right? But then the cost of care, especially as we age, is also increasing. It's uh, it's a very expensive uh, uh, proposition for governments to think about how uh, they can support uh, families, and then families need to figure out how to pay for this kind of care. Um, Can you talk about what has changed in the last few years at all and and the ways that uh, families and governments can respond uh, to this issue of needing long-term care for many Americans? Well, certainly um, people do need to think about long-term care needs in the future and how they might pay for them. It is very expensive, as you said. Nursing home care itself is between eighty dollars and $90,000 per year. And the, the, sources, the resources that are available are 
certainly your own private resources. Um, many people think that Medicare is um, available for long-term care services, and unfortunately, um, it's not. Um, so Medicare does pay for skilled care after someone has a qualifying hospital stay, but it's very limited in terms of what it will pay for. Um, the other option would be Medicaid, um, but at that point, you have to spend down your resources and, and qualify for that, but that's the only other option for paying for long-term care unless you have some sort of long-term care insurance. So it is something that people need to think about um, as they're preparing for long-term needs. Uh, Kaiser Family Foundation issued a report in 2017. It found Medicaid is now the default payer for 61% of all nursing home residents in the U.S. Uh, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, all systems that came about when our country's demographics was much different and now we see Medicaid, again, taking up the majority uh, of the, the cost uh, for people trying to navigate uh, long-term care. So what, what options do families have, um, to, again, to think about planning, but maybe not waiting until there's a crisis? Sure, certainly not waiting, and also looking at what options are available. Um, what type of long-term care do you need? And because of um, policies that have been put into place over the last probably five to ten years, Medicaid is also available in different settings, which might be lower cost. So um, people are now receiving services in their homes or in lower cost settings, such as assisted living or personal care type homes, as well as nursing homes. So becoming educated about what resources are available to you in your community, um, places like Elder Care Locator or Area Agencies on Aging can um, help you um, think through what um, long-term care options are available in your community. Uh, we heard from an association that represents nonprofit nursing homes in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we were wondering about staffing ratios when uh, that is considered um, when nursing homes in the state have been cited for lapses in care. Uh, for uh, people trying to navigate the system, is nonprofit uh, a better facility to try for than for profit, Lori? Well, data show that um, nonprofits. Uh, generally have higher staffing levels, and they often have fewer deficiencies on the surveys um, that are um, done on a yearly basis. But I, we really encourage people to look at each facility that they're considering independently, because you can get quality care in both nonprofit and for-profit facilities, as well as you could have challenges in care in both types of facilities. So you really do need to look at each facility independently and do your um, due diligence and do your homework in terms of looking at the facility itself and, and what your needs are and are they a good match. Uh, depending where someone lives, uh, they might have uh, less choice uh, in the type of facility uh, they can uh, choose for their, their relative. Uh, what happens then, Lori, uh, if this particular facility, when they use these online uh, tools that you mentioned, uh, maybe they've been cited uh, often for lapses in care? I mean, what, can, what, what choices do people have then? Well, certainly, as uh, once you're in a facility and you are looking at getting quality care for your loved one or protecting your rights, um, if you have concerns, as uh, one of the previous callers had mentioned or one of your previous guests, certainly talk to the facility about any concerns that you have. That, that is certainly one of the first things you should do. There are other resources available to you. The Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program, which is a federally mandated program for advocates and exists in every community and every state across the country, they are available to um, advocate for residents and families and provide assistance in resolving complaints to the satisfaction of the resident to the best of their ability. And they will help you work through any issues or concerns that you have. So we would definitely recommend that. 
Another resource that we would recommend for families and residents is to become involved in resident and family councils that exist in the facilities. Most facilities have them, and in fact, federal law gives residents and families the right to join together as councils, and not only do they offer a sense of community and the ability to share experiences and to work towards common goals with each other by being part of those councils, but they're also a source for helping to raise issues or grievances or concerns with the facility, and will um, they can work with the facility in order to resolve them. Lori Smetanka is with us by phone, Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. This is an organization that helps advocate for families to make the right decision for their relatives who need long-term care. Uh, earlier, I mentioned uh, you know, the idea that uh, we shouldn't wait for a crisis to try to plan uh, for uh, later in life when we may need help uh, taking care of ourselves or our loved ones. Uh, but that almost sounds uh, easier said than done because there's always something that uh, people have to pay for. Uh, there are long-term care policies, but from my understanding, those are very expensive. Uh, so um, what are some um, suggestions that you would have for families, uh, for couples who are thinking about how uh, they can uh, pick up this tab uh, later in life? Well, certainly looking at long-term care insurance policies is something that um, is uh, an option for people, and, and they do need to consider that. Um, as they get older and start looking at how um, they're making their resources available, certainly, you know, savings is a resource, or, or looking at, um, at your own planning with your financial advisor would be important to think about long-term care needs. But it is important to be thinking about it because, as you mentioned, um, too often what we find right now is that families are making decisions about long-term care in crisis situations after a serious health event has happened, and at that point um, when they, they need time to look for an appropriate long-term care facility, um, and, and they need to spend the time um, doing due diligence about the facility that's going to meet their individual care needs. We do recommend that they um, research facilities that are in their areas. Um, Nursing Home Compare is a website operated by the federal government that gives information about recent surveys, about staffing levels, and about how the facility has performed on different quality measures. And we really recommend that people visit the facilities in their area um, and use all of their senses when they go into those nursing homes to get a sense of what life is really like for people that live there. Uh, we've been focusing on nursing homes, but before someone uh, has to stay there uh, long term or even short term, there are other alternatives uh, for uh, Americans to consider. Can you walk us through some of them in just a few minutes, Lori? Sure. And so um, if they don't have a nursing home, what are some other options for them? Uh, if they're not uh, looking at a nursing home directly, other options could be assisted living facilities. Um, they provide a lower level of care um, and a little bit more independence to people who might be um, looking for some just uh, some additional help um, with their activities of daily living. Um, communities have personal care type homes or boarding care type facilities as well. And many people are receiving care in their homes right now, bringing caregivers into their homes um, so that they're able to stay in a familiar familiar setting. And Laura, you uh, mentioned uh, that there are uh, councils, resident councils, to help families um, if there's a complaint with a particular nursing home to try to resolve that. You also mentioned ombudsmen. So uh, for a listener in Connecticut, how do they find their local ombudsman? Um, so if you go to our website at theconsumervoice.org, we have a list of all ombudsman programs across the country, um, and you can find an ombudsman in your state or in your community.
And then lastly, uh, Lori, uh, we were talking about uh, federal uh, oversight, uh, access to better data, but also uh, making sure that there is a minimum uh, staffing requirement. Um, because your organization has been tracking this for some time, um, you know, is there um, more that the federal government can do uh, to help uh, ensure that there's qualities uh, in the state levels? Well, certainly staffing is the most important component of the provision of care. And um, so we have been advocating for minimum staffing levels that the federal government should put into place right now. There do not exist minimum levels um, federally, although some states do have them. But uh, we do encourage the federal government to be looking at the staffing levels in nursing homes much more closely enforcing standards when um, the staffing levels do not provide the adequate care that residents are entitled to. Um, And again, we have been advocating that staffing standards be actually put into place by the federal government. Lori Smetanka, thank you for joining us. Uh, She's executive director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Uh, You've provided us a lot of tools uh, to our listeners to find uh, resources to help them. We're going to tweet those out um, at where we live. And then, Lori, are we missing anything before we let you go? I think um, people just need to be very vigilant in uh, looking for a nursing home or other long-term care setting that meets their needs. And again, use all your senses and do your research before picking a, a location. Lori Smetenka, again, thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live, a today's show produced by Lydia Brown. A special thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>